Hello, and welcome to the Conversations with Data podcast, where we bring you the most interesting discussions around data journalism. I'm your host, Tara Kelly, and today we'll be examining the issue of archiving data journalism. For the past decade or so, newsrooms have been designing beautiful interactive data visualizations, but with elaborate code. But these data journalism stories are not being preserved in traditional archives. As such, they're disappearing from the web. Code gets old, tools die, or news apps are put to bed. Perhaps even more frustrating, existing web archiving technology can't capture this dynamic content. So what are the solutions to this problem? How do we support journalists to preserve their content? And how do we encourage existing companies that provide tools for our industry to help them? Joining us to discuss this, we have Bahari Harabi from the University of Surrey and Simon Rogers from Google. Dr. Bahari Harabi is a reader in AI and media at the Surrey Institute for People-Centered AI. Her research is primarily focused on data and computational journalism, data storytelling, data visualization, and the use of AI in journalism and media. Simon Rogers is a data journalist, writer, and speaker. He is author of Facts Are Sacred and is currently data editor at Google and formerly Twitter. He is most known for his work as data editor at The Guardian where he led The Guardian's data blog. All that's coming up after this. Support for this episode of Conversations with Data and the following message come from Flockynet.is. Flockynet is a web hosting company that was established in Iceland to provide safe harbor for freedom of speech, free press, and whistleblower projects. The company operates data centers in Iceland, Romania, and Finland. Flockynet's core values revolve around privacy and freedom of speech while providing autonomous, incorruptible, and flexible solutions optimized to help you spread your ideas freely. Use the code DATAJOURNALISM on Flockynet's website to get 15% off all of their servers and products. And don't forget that all registered datajournalism.com users have free web space and domains through Flockynet. Check your profile to find out how to claim it or visit flockynet.is slash ejc.php. And before we kick off today's episode, don't forget to take the State of Data Journalism Survey 2022. Visit datajournalism.com slash survey slash 2022. Now let's take a listen to our conversation with Bahare Haravi and Simon Rogers. Bahare Ravi, Simon Rogers, welcome to Conversations with Data. Hi. Hi, thanks for having me. I wanted to start with you, Bahare. Um, let's start with that article you wrote for datajournalism.com on how to preserve data journalism. I wonder from your perspective, why haven't digital publications been able to properly preserve their material, unlike the broadcast and print industries? I think the main issue here is how complex the interactive data visualizations are and the news organizations don't really have the mechanisms for preserving these content. So they're all very much used to preserving and archiving content that are text-based, image-based, or video-based. So they've been doing it for many years. Um, the, it was analog first and then to digital, they kind of moved on. Archives are now digital and they're very good at it. But now the the kind of interactive data visualizations are quite complex 
objects. There's a lot of interdependencies and dependencies. And as we kind of move forward, the programming languages that are behind them changes. Um, so one day, for example, it was Flash. One day is JavaScript. And they just keep changing and the interdependencies be between them and between the, the kind of the software that runs them, the host that hosts them, the connections that is between the host that hosts them and the news organization, the article that is on the news organization. These are all kind of bits and pieces that need to be properly connected for the preservation to happen. And if one of them fails, um, th that link kind of falls apart. We are only 10 years in and already so much content has been lost. Um, so we, we, we kind of really need to start thinking about it now. Absolutely. And Simon, I just wonder from your perspective, I mean, you're now a data editor at Google, but many years ago, you were also a data journalist at The Guardian. Um, and, you know, you have experience of creating these type of visualizations, and then now we're seeing some of them disappear. And I wonder, you know, what's your perspective on this? What, what are the hurdles for people in the newsroom when trying to kind of preserve this content? It's funny, isn't it? I mean, I, I, I think almost everything I've worked on probably doesn't work now at The Guardian. I can't think of many projects that do in terms of the bigger interactive projects. And the weird thing is, I have a poster at home of the very first issue of The Guardian. I can read the stories from you know, the very first page of the very first Guardian, but I can't see an interactive that was like the biggest thing on the site for a few days from, from uh, you know, seven or eight years ago. And I think partly it's because, you know, journalists do what we want them to do, which is live in the now, right? They have to get something done for tomorrow. They just like, there's a scrappiness to it, which is what enables people to be innovative and, and exciting and, and get stuff done. But at the same time, they don't apply the same approach to interactive or data content as they would to written content. So when I was at The Guardian, one of the rooms I enjoyed going to was the archive room. You could get all these old issues of the paper. It was very handy, actually. And then, you know, it was digitized as well, but actually sometimes you want to be able to see it on paper. Um, so, you know, news organizations have a well-worn archive system for generating stories. You know, they, they keep a story from three months ago, so it'll create a follow-up and a follow-up to that and a follow-up to that. And there's, a, there's almost like a kind of a circle of life of a news story which carries on sometimes for years and years and years. People don't think of interactives in the same way. Think of something they've got to get out tomorrow and, and that's it. And, you know, libraries change, code changes. It starts to be expensive to keep things going. You know, sometimes you have to rebuild something from scratch because something's been discontinued that relies on a key, a key code library or, or visualization library that relies on has vanished and you have to, to start from scratch if you're going to keep it for mineral return. So one of the projects we worked on was um, famously MP's expenses where we were, it was the first big kind of crowdsourced user organization project. And I can, I, when I, that was switched off even just before I left because, you know, they, they would say, well, we'd have to rebuild the whole thing. It's costing money to keep going. It's expensive. So, so it dies. And I guess I'm thinking it's not that we want a project necessary to live on but we want to know that it was there it has to have had a an imprint right and and that's important for institutional memory it's actually having to repeat the same things maybe there's an inspirational thing about that you know reading the riots was inspired by a project that happened in 1968 
and we know about it because it was written down. It was in a book, so we could see it. Um, whereas, you know, will people be able to see Reading the Riots in in 20 years' time or 30 years' time, be inspired by that in the same way? Um, so I think it is it's a serious issue. People don't realise it's a serious issue, which is part of the problem. And I don't think necessarily that the answer is that something has to work. I'd like to be talk about that a little bit more, but I think that the answer has, has to be that we know that it was there and we know what it did and we know how it did it, which is uh, maybe a slightly different different take on that. Yes, uh, absolutely. And I know, Bahare, if we want to talk a little bit about your paper that you wrote for us, you kind of give an outline of what journalists can do now to start saving their work and preserving their work. Um, do you want to talk through some of those solutions with us? Sure. So as as, as Simon said, the, the, the idea behind the research we had was that the news is part of the history in a sense. So when researchers or historians kind of go back and they want to read about something, they often go and look into the news archives to see what happened at a given time. And the, the riots were a really good example. And I really always liked uh, showing it to my students in the class, which which now I can't um, in the way I could before. But in, in the paper, what we did, we tried to look into different domains and disciplines that look into preservation of of objects and content that are similar um, in one way or another to the output of um, data journalism and specifically interactive data visualizations that are dynamic um, objects or content. And in the kind of a digital preservation um, world, they call them uh, complex digital objects, which is in contrary to more flat file types such as um, image or uh, or a video. So in in the research what we came up with would was two set were two sets of recommendations. One of them were kind of the more long-term infrastructural um recommendations that are not very easy to do. They're expensive, they need time, they need resources. But the other set of um recommendations that we had was the types of recommendations that are easy to implement uh, in terms of resources and in terms of times and what the journalists could do at an indi individual level uh, to ensure to some degree, to a good degree, that not so much content is lost. And I think that's maybe not too far away from what Simon was mentioning about not having the thing work exactly as it does which is complex. For example, it needs emulation. Uh, emulation is very heavy, it's very complex, it's very expensive, and it requires a lot of maintenance. So in the recommendations, uh, some of the uh, recommendations that we have is we introduce or we draw on a concept called significant properties. So the idea is that if the journalists could come up with a set of significant properties for their story and the significant properties what are they? They kind of capture um, some of the properties or characteristics of a visual piece, an interactive piece in, in, in the case of our research. It is about the behavior of the work. It is about the interactions that it has with the user. And at the end of the day, it is about the intended, intended purpose of that specific piece. What did it want to convey to the reader or to the audience? So if 
the journalist could come up with a set of significant properties from this specific specific visualization on the MP's expenses, for example. What is really important for the future reader in 15 years to be able to see about this? One, maybe the shape of it overall, how it looked like, but also what types of content were there and what were the interactions. So by identifying these kind of important or significant properties, as they are called, then they can start capturing what is important there. For example, um, one of the recommendations that we have is that at the very minimum, try to capture a number of uh, screen graphs, which is very easy to do. And based on the significant properties that you identify, it could be done by one screen graph, it could be done by five screen graphs, but try to do it. If five screen graphs are not enough, try to create a GIF animation of your work, which kind of encapsulate more screen graphs, essentially. And some of the news organizations are already creating GIF animations for promotion of their content on the social media. So it would be even better, like they could use it for their social media promotion, but it could also be there preserved in the same way that other image pieces are preserved in their archives. Um, so that in the future, the user, the reader can kind of get an idea of what it was. And if GIF animation is not enough, do a video cast. Just record a video of move your mouse around and record a video to give to show the, the reader an idea of what it is. And then what is important there is make sure this whatever content that you have captured from the interactive visualization, make sure it is also linked to the piece. So it, it shouldn't be an afterthought. So you could still show your reader what was here, what was encapsulated in it, and the whole story is not gone. It is not perfect. You can't see everything, but something is there that could give an idea of what was there. I think that's really smart. I think um, I would say when we were we were discussing here, Hester, one of my thoughts was maybe it should just be like a YouTube channel or something simple that's going to be around because what, whatever we build wants to we want to kind of build out redundancy as much as possible because of that so even if it's just like a youtube channel where you've got interviews just set, set of screenshots or whatever i think i think it would be something well you've already got archives out there in the sense you've got like the sigma data and Awards has got you know three years now of entries yeah that will build up over time before that the data journals Awards had like almost every major project would enter those entries like have screenshots and the, the stuff is there. We just need to bring it together. If it is done at the time of publication, then it could take half an hour extra. But I think we could ensure that the content stays there uh, for 10, 20, 50 years time, hopefully. Yeah, I mean, archiving isn't exactly a sexy thing to sell to data journalists and editors who, where a half an hour or an hour does feel like a lot, or even they don't know how to go about doing it. So I wonder what's the elevator pitch to get them hooked and invested into this kind of solution? Um, like, how do you explain the importance of this? You know, um, one thing that journalists are all interested in is immortality a little bit. That's why people love seeing their byline. I think you need some, you do need some incentive to know that it's going to exist and it has to be low enough work that um, it's not a huge lift for people but also you probably need people who are responsible for it, at least to get things started uh, as the only way you know librarians exist for a reason right they have a, their, their job is to to do that archivists do that but every news organization pretty much has 
set of archivists who think about keeping stuff, but you know, this is just this is just too difficult. And it's outside their typical their typical work. So yes. So probably education, in a sense, is important at this point, because when the archivists are there, if they don't know how to work with these new content, um, they wouldn't also think about it. But if they know, like in, in, in this research, I worked with digital archivists and librarians, and their way of thinking really helped me to kind of bring all these pieces together to see how we can work around these issues. I do think even though journalists don't have time and they are probably not in the habit of going back to their work to fixing something i do think the understanding of the importance of archives is is there so it's just taking it one step further to how we do it with these new types of content yeah and i mean uh, to simon's point i think there's something about uh you know seeing your byline and having all those clips and Especially if you're someone who decides to go freelance, you need to have that archived and, um, you know, you need to be able to re refer to that, even if sometimes it looks a bit old. Like, I think I did something at CNN um, on the history of women in space, and it's like an interactive. It actually still works. It's 10 years old, but um, I, I still want to link to it and I still want to have it. So maybe that is is how we motivate people. You know, maybe what it needs is some kind of you know, like the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. <laughs> you know, people want to be an inductee in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Yeah, right. So maybe we need something like that where it's prestigious to get inducted into it. Congratulations, your piece has been chosen, selected by you know to be to be preserved. Um, maybe that's what it needs. Yeah, we're all snobs in this way <laughs> a little bit. So maybe it just needs some kind of. Um, Something to 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 really give it some prestige to to have your work preserved that way. I'm I'm now thinking maybe there could be an exhibition to 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 exhibit the content that's dead, the content that's gone. So you could kind of walk through the dead content if you can find them to to, yeah. to exhibit. <laughs> yeah, no, they do, and they do see this stuff sometimes. So I was at um, Bletchley Park in the summer, which is the former kind of code breaking centre where all the you know the, all the Enigma machines were during the war and there was an exhibition there on data and it's full of visuals as an exhibition of data it's kind of cool right to see this stuff in um like in physical form um yeah i think this is uh, i think we should talk more about this <laughs> but i think i think it could go somewhere but it does need that kind of enthusiasm attached to it yeah definitely i actually pitched an idea to netflix on uh, doing a documentary on the history of data journalism uh, they turned it down, but I still oh. think, I still think that uh, a documentary combined with an exhibit, combined with some training, I mean, we've got a project proposal here. <laughs> you know? The thing about you, Simon, that I think is interesting. You've gone from from a newsroom to now Google, but you're also teaching data journalism as well, just as Bahare has um, and is. So I just wonder, from your perspective, like. The Iraq war logs were really important, right, to, to how data journalism evolved. What's your perspective on that in terms of archiving as well? Yeah, I mean, that particular project, when you go to the page now, you see two 404 little embeds on there, um, one of which is an embed for a Google Sheet, which was, um, I think the team there didn't update. Well, after I left The Guardian, it was, just wasn't nobody looked after that. 
And the other was an embed for a Google Fusion table. And Google Fusion tables were shut down uh, the end of the year before last, um, which is a real shame because, you know, I speak so many words inside Google, you know, there's, but, you know, when you've got a tool that people really love and helped a lot of journalists starting out around the world. And that, but that Fusion table map was essentially a map of all of these incidents. So all that's left now is a table of text essentially like formatted table that we'd added onto the page, like a summary of the raw logs. So there were two things there. First, it shows you nothing is safe, right? even like, you know, some you know, can't rely that something is even produced by the world's biggest company is, is still going to be around because that might have had to be rebuilt or, you know, people, th those assessments always have to be made about whether something's worth keeping. And the second thing is actually having a really simple tabbed table on there did the job in a way because it's preserved, at least it's preserved some of it. But in terms of like teaching, it does make it harder. And I've realized that a lot of things like probably that map now only exists as screenshots. Like you can find in Google Images if you're lucky. I've got some in some old deck somewhere. You know, that's it now. That's that's the that's how it survived. So um it's tricky. And I did remake it, actually I remade it just before they shut it down, remade it in Numcato. Um, then you rely on the Carter, somebody else, another tool being around forever. And I just don't think we can do that because you never know, you know, what imperative is going to change for a different a different provider. It does make it harder when I'm talking to my students now. I don't actually talk about those projects a lot. And probably I should, actually, because I think I think there's stuff to learn from them. But I tend to focus on things that I can show them that exist now, which is is like if I can't talk about stuff that I've done then I don't know, that, that seems like a problem to me and that applies to everybody. And Bahari, I mean, you were a software developer, then you did your PhD, and then you really started the data journalism movement in Ireland. And I just wonder from your perspective, what has it been like? Um, how does archiving play into what you're trying to teach? For me, showing those early versions of um, data journalism is important. It has historical importance. So when you want to start a topic with the students, you want to be able to give them a bit of history, right? So you want to be able to tell them where it all started. And those guardian um, visualizations and data journalism work for me were where I wanted to start part of the history of data, data journalism and tell the students. So it is a bit tricky because when you go into them to show they don't exist, which is then a little bit like, uh, what am I even talking about? Because nothing is here. They are useful when I'm talking about archiving. <laughs> so the session that is about archiving, I can use them as, as an example. But um, yeah, I can't show them. And there's always this um, worry that if I'm opening any piece in the class, it may or may not work. It, it definitely makes teaching a bit tricky because you either can't show or you don't know if something will load. Uh, but yeah, it's it's good for the archiving session. <laughs> I remember when Fusion Tables announced that they were shutting and, you know, we were trying to migrate things away. We were given enough time to do that, but sometimes that's not always the case. And I think, Bahari, you talk a little bit about that in your paper. I have two examples in the paper. One of them is Google Fusion Tables and another one is silk.co, which was a tool that suddenly got popular uh, amongst data journalists and they provided free subscription to the journalists. And pretty quickly, 
uh, they didn't live very long, but th there was quite a significant amount of content uh, on it produced by data journalists. And they gave a very short notice of closure. Um, and the way they did it, which wasn't very different from Google Fusion tables, was that we will make the code available to you or we will make the data available to you. You can take it and then do whatever you want to do with it. But most data journalists... One wouldn't have the expertise. Two, there's no infrastructure to implement that code again uh, in a way that it could work. And also most journalists wouldn't go back one by one to all their stories to kind of maintain their stories and make sure they are working. So even if we are given good time, I think 90% chance, unless there's an independent journalist who has published on their own medium, um, there's a good chance that you can't go back to fix everything. Also, people move away from organizations like Simon did work for The Guardian. And I, I'm assuming now, even if you want to maintain your content, not working in The Guardian, you can't actually go back and fix the content at The Guardian, right? Yeah, and I couldn't even access the, the spreadsheets or whatever stuff was based on. Um, no, I think that's that's dead on, and it's um, you know, the thing when um, Fusion Tables was uh, was wound down, we had a ton of warning because we knew there was going to come a point at which it would either have to be rebuilt or turned off, and there just wasn't the team there to to rebuild it, so it was switched off. Um, but at least there was a process for migrating the data out, and you know, not everybody's going to do that. Not everybody's got resources that that we had to do that. Um, so so yeah it's it's that it's a lot it's amazing to me how much of this relies on the goodwill of people <laughs> essentially we're we're relying on people you know caring about it to do something about it i think it's strange to me that we haven't figured a way to automate this what are your thoughts on that yeah, so one of the recommendations as part of the kind of a near-time recommendations, things that could be done now by the journalist in terms of capturing uh, some of the significant properties was that uh, I think journalists should start demanding um, these types of functionalities from the tool providers. So, for example, if we are using Data Wrapper or Flourish, and if the tools actually give us the functionality to export some sort of a GIF animation pick some of the parts of the charts um, on a timeline or something like that to export some sort of a GIF animation or video or a number of screen grabs that we can choose which part of the charts they come from. I think that would be very useful. So that is one thing. Another thing with the third-party tools is the hosting of them. So if the tools could provide this functionality to us to download the GIF animation or video or image or what I mean, image they already give, but uh, if a GIF animation or the video, then we can take them and put them on the CMS or archiving system of the news organization. It is going to make life so much easier because the tool providers already have the technical expertise to provide functionalities like this at some level. And... When the function is there, I think it is going, uh, journalists wouldn't need to put a lot more time in it to do it. If you can just press a button and give a, get a GIF animation, I think that would be very helpful to preservation uh, at some level, I think. What are your thoughts on in-house teams within newsrooms, hand coding and building their own tools and um, you know using that instead of relying on different tools, third-party tools that might 
suddenly spin off or close or not give you enough time to do what you need to do? Is, is that unrealistic? Is that too expensive? Is that too dependent on, on individual teams? Firstly, I think, yeah, in terms of what Bahar was saying, I think, yeah, I'm, I don't know what the incentive is for a commercial company to produce an archive. You know, like, like Flourish is now owned by Canva. You know, what's their incentive to do it? Maybe um, they would do it, but I worry about that. And I think with, news, with newsroom teams, a lot of them are tiny. You know, they're not all the New York Times, right? Some of them are like one or two people. They don't have necessarily the space to be thinking about that. And when, you know, when I see it here, like when Google builds a tool, they have to build in like a, a project, you know, how, how is it going to be maintained? How is it going to be updated? That sort of thing. And users don't have that pressure, so they don't do it. Um, and so one of the problems, unless you are the Times or the Post or the Guardian, one of the problems with building your own tools is they have to be maintained and managed. And I just don't know if the incentives are there because you never get, you get credit for launching stuff. You don't get credit for keeping it going, you know? So I don't know if that incentive's there. And so in a way you should be safer with third party tools because they have a incentive at least to maintain and go on. You just have to be aware that they might not last forever. And I don't know if anything is like, is gonna be around forever. Who knows, you know, what's gonna happen in 10 years time, the way we use technology could be utterly different. You know, basically now, you know, the, the amount of people that would use a, a, a interactive on their phone compared to online, which wildly have changed in the last five years. So you're having to build stuff for those. Phone libraries change all the time. You know, what if something is VR or AR? You know, there was a fantastic project by the, the New York Times the year before last where they were, they were visualizing um, air pollution where you could see it on your phone like these dots kind of floating in your immediate environment, that project, I bet you that will not survive. But one of the innovative and interesting projects is, but I can't see you being able to use that in two years' time because phone technology is changing so much and so quickly. Um, but I think you're safer. You're safer with third-party tools, but the other side of that is it just prolongs it a bit. <laughs> it doesn't prolong it forever. You know, at some point, one of those companies won't be around, you know, when we started, we used to use Many Eyes, produced by IBM. You know, then but that relied on Flash, so you know it it died, as these things do. So um, I don't mean to sound too miserable as bad. We had to be realistic and think, you know, what is bearing that in mind that you know nothing is going to last forever. What is the best way to make something last forever? It'd be ironic if in you know a hundred years time, people could still read a page of the Guardian from 1860, but they can't see you know, a, an interactive from 2022. And I think my, my point with the third party tools was mostly to, if we are hosting it there, that's one thing, but how can we um, extract that little pieces that include the significant properties and put it in our traditional archiving systems that have been there for many years now? Uh, so I think that that kind of linkage um, whether it is manual or um, provided by the third-party tools uh, would be useful. Marvelous. Um, do any of you have any final thoughts on what's next for archiving and data journalism? This has made me think that um, we need to talk about this more again this year. So I'm I'm definitely going to apply myself to this um, this year. I just think it's just it's only becoming more and more important. And I'm really you know thank you for 
Tara, for your your research on this, and thank you, Tara, for focusing on it. Because I just think, you know, I, I want legacy is important, and data journalism has this huge legacy of really talented people. And to see that stuff just vanish, some of the most innovative and exciting work in journalism right now, it can't happen. We have to make sure it doesn't. Yeah, exactly the same. It is. It is. We need to act quickly. And I think collaboration, there's a lot of people who are interested on the topic. There's the data journalists, there's the news organizations who are the main stakeholders in a sense. There's the tech companies who have the tech expertise, the third-party data visualization companies, digital preservation organizations who have a lot of expertise in this area and, and, and the academic and scientific community. And if we could kind of bring these people together who are interested in and kind of knowledgeable in the, in, in the domain on this area and do something about it as soon as possible. I think that would be great. Brilliant. I'm feeling a multi-stakeholder forum on data journalism archiving. It's slightly niche, but it's important, especially after COVID-19 and what we've been through. These visualizations matter and those stories matter. And yeah, I think people get that now. So thank you both for working on this topic and coming on and sharing your thoughts and your experience though with uh, the data journals community and conversations with data. Thank you. Thank you. A big thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in today and to Flockynet for making this episode possible. Flockynet is a web hosting company that was established in Iceland to provide safe harbor for freedom of speech, free press and whistleblower projects. To claim your 15% off all of Flockynet's servers and products, head over to their website and type in the promotion code Data Journalism. Remember that all registered datajournalism.com users have access to free web space and domains through Flockynet. Check out your profile today on how to claim it, or go to flockynet.is/ejc.php. Want to hear more interesting discussions around data journalism? You can subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud, Spotify, Google, and Apple Podcasts. You can also get the podcast straight to your inbox by subscribing to our newsletter at datajournalism.com slash subscribe. Conversations with Data podcast is an initiative by datajournalism.com powered by the European Journalism Center and supported by Google News Initiative. I've been your host, Tara Kelly, and that's all for now. See you next time.